Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Hi, I'm Joe McHugh, and for this podcast, I travel to the Festival of American Fiddle Tunes in Port Townsend, Washington, to interview my good friend, Scott Marks. Scott lives in Port Townsend, and he is both a fine fiddler and a well-respected violin maker. His wife, Jeannie, is a wonderful banjo player, singer, and she plays the fiddle too, and she also writes great books. I interviewed Scott at the Rain Shadow Recording Studio, which is located inside the former power station for Fort Warden, a former military base protecting the entrance to Puget Sound, and that now serves as a state park and home to the Centrum Center for the Arts. Scott grew up near Seattle, and after a few years of classical training on the violin as a youngster, he turned his attention to learning to play the fiddle. Here he tells how his passion for making violins began. I was starting to get into fiddle music by the end of middle school. And then in high school, the orchestra wasn't all that good, and so I didn't sign up for that. But there was a woman, Phyllis Lee, who was a teacher at the high school, who played fiddle music. And my mom met her, and and, um, they'd come and played for one of the lunch things or something. And... um, so my mom talked to her, and she started bringing my brother and I to the Washington Old Time Fiddlers jam sessions and things like that. And there was this guy, Tex Standifer, who I met at a Christmas party, one of the Old Time Fiddlers Christmas parties. And he had taught himself how to make fiddles. And I saw one that he'd made, and it was kind of rough. And I, I remember thinking, oh, human beings do this. Because you see, most violins, they're so clean, and you... You know, I was already into making stuff, and I, I loved making stuff. But you see, like, the arching of a violin and the edge work, and it's like, there's no tool marks. It's just clean. And um, so it wasn't even in my imagination how someone would do that. And so I saw this one that Tex had made, and it was kind of a little more rough. And so you know, it was like human beings do this. So I, I asked Tex all sorts of questions and his wife, Carmen had cancer and we used to go out and play, play music for, for them. And, um, Carmen died. And a while later, um, Tex invited my brother and I to come out and get started making a couple of fiddles. So Phyllis brought us out there and, and Phyllis and Tex ended up getting married later on and um so tex got me started making fiddles and and i still have that first one hanging in my shop and it's pretty rough and you know but i did i did that and um and by then i was in high school wood shop and once you do all the required projects then you can make whatever you want so i was working on the fiddle a little bit in there and then made other instruments in, in wood shop Now and again in life, someone comes along and gives us something that becomes very important to us. They don't sell it to us. It's a gift. And if we're lucky, we will find opportunities to pass that gift along to others. Perhaps even add a little of ourselves to that gift. I think there's there's this thing where um, there's things that you, you give away or you sell and they use them up. And there's less left afterwards. And there's other things that you give away 
or you use, and there's more afterwards. And teaching is one of the things where when you share information, you have your information still. Someone else has that. And then there's the information that comes from the exchange. And like there's some people, you know, in the old violin world, there's all this secrecy of, you know, I'm not going to tell you my secrets of varnish or whatever. And yet if I tell you exactly what I do with making or varnish, it's going to come out different when you do it like a signature, but you'll think of something. And if I shared it with you in the exchange of just sharing more ideas come up and we both learn from it. And then if you think of something later and share it back, then we've gained even more. So there's a certain, there's a certain thing where you're trying to find more things in life that grow in the giving. I think this is going on across the culture right now in, in a surprising way. Maybe we don't talk about it as much as, I mean, it's real, it's everywhere. Um, give you an example, you know, I'm, I'm going to put in some cement board <laughs> right, to redo a bathroom just a month ago. I go on YouTube and there are people telling you how to cut cement board, which is not easy. You're like, which tool do you really use? And how do you, you know, what's the best way to get at doing yeah, that? Yeah. And I can't, you know, I look at these people and, you know, they're amateur looking in the video maybe. But, you know, sometimes the guy's back is to the camera. Hold on just a minute. Now, here it is. But this idea that somebody took the time, I got out the little camera, did it, put it up on YouTube. I think it's because so much of our official or public lives have been commodified. Uh, the, the prices have been placed on everything we do and how much you get paid for it and how much time you spend. And then there's this flourishing, gifting environment that's going on. And I think it's a, I think it's a, not just helping people, but I think it's a almost unconscious reaction to everything being commodified, even our, you know, our political process. If you donate X number of dollars, you get to maybe sit at this table and you might meet your local senator. You donate, and I mean, these are real specific amounts. This is not like just vague. They, the, the parties come out and tell you, you know, at this rate, you get to have play golf with the vice president. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, everything being um, assigned to value. And, uh, and, and part of this whole project around the violin world really fascinates me because you have this entire mechanism assigning values to certain instruments you know, whether they're historic instruments and so forth, or you want a, a medal at VSA, and therefore that violin that a day ago would have sold for $10,000 will now sell for $22,000. You know, all the mechanisms in place, and maybe we can go there in a minute or now and then come back to how you developed your skill. But this fascinates me, um, and I'm not sure what I'm getting at with it. But anything you want to say on these subjects? <laughs> oh, I just th thought if I was at a violin convention and one of the makers who won a medal was Chinese. And so you talk about, you know, this violin that was worth this much is now worth this much. He was trying to sell another two violins that he'd made. And no one wanted to pay what they were worth because they were Chinese. And they couldn't, at that point, imagine selling a Chinese violin for that amount of money. And it's like, it's still a great violin. It's better than all these other violins that are worth more. So 
that that the money in violin making is always complicated yeah yeah and somebody told me one time he said um uh somebody told him this you're selling romance and um i think there's a lot of truth in that so you know people come to me and they're like you know i'd like to try one of your violins or or more they're they're i want to get a really good violin and i'll tell them about chinese violins you know if you want the best deal for the money there's some really great chinese makers and they're underpriced um but mostly people buy my violins because they want one of mine so you know right and they do have the opportunity to know you yeah and so it has that other relationship to them too yeah well and sometimes sometimes it is it's really a relationship too I'm making a violin for a man right now who's been coming by the shop and and uh he was interested in making but you know it was late in life and and he so he bought a Chinese violin in the white figuring he'd varnish it and that would be part of the experience and then he brought it to a shop and they looked at it and they said well this really re- needs regraduation you know and he thought well if I'm going to put all this work into it varnishing it I'd like it to sound good too. So it sort of sat on hold for about 10 years. And then when I started making the violin for him, I said, you know, you can visit it while it's being made. And and, um, he was really interested in that. So I said, well, is there any particular part that you you don't want to miss? I'll make sure that when I'm doing that, I'll I'll tell you and you can get over here for it. And so he, he said the graduations. And then he told me about this Chinese violin. And, um, so, you know, I scheduled for that time, we worked it out and he came over for, for different parts of that process. And then I said, Hey, you want to bring in your violin? We can, we can take a look at it. And so he brought it in and I explained how to take the top off and showed him and he brought it home and took the top off and, and then he brought it in again and we just scheduled the time. And so while I was working on his violin, I set him up and had him regraduate in his his Chinese violin and um, he's a just a really neat guy and it's been great to have him in the shop and and it's weird you know when I make a violin for a person a lot of times I'll let them pick out the wood and I'll take pictures along the way so they can sort of get the process even from a ways away and um, but I don't do a deposit or anything because I want it to be a choice in the end. And um, then they they basically have first dibs on it. And if they like it, they buy it. And if they don't like it or can't buy it or whatever, then I'll sell it to somebody else. And so it's, you could say it's a risk, you know, because I'm not nailing it down. But at the same time, I'd rather somebody buy a violin that they want and not be stuck with it, you know. Well, for people who don't know, Port Townsend is not the easiest place in the world to get to. Uh, I always think of Washington State itself being the return address part of the envelope of the United States. So, you know, <laughs> so you're way over there, and then you're even further up in the corner, the very top corner. And uh, you can get here by ferry, which is a just a wonderful experience. I mean, again, that uh, almost crossing a threshold sort of idea. 
So I would recommend anyone who comes to look at a violin that you have or pick the wood for one, take the ferry. But you can get here by car, going down through Olympia, where we are up at, on up Puget Sound and Hood Canal. It's oh, stunningly a beautiful, beautiful drive. drive. But, you know, think about it. You're moving along in a car, and you're, you're seeing these, this stunning landscape. The Olympic National Park right there. And on your left, and um, these ancient forests. And then you come to this violin maker's place and go through this process with you, which I, th- I think would be, you know, once in a lifetime experience. What, a, what an offer, especially letting them sort of pick the wood with you and you explain what wood is and what might work for them. And then, but they have some input in that. That's, that's a great idea. And I just think that would build a, a memory and a story about how that violin came into the world. It would mean a lot to me as a musician. Yeah, yeah. I like it a lot. So we're just right here, and we're going to go back, but the graduation part, because, you know, there, there are these patterns. I've seen these where, you know, the graduations are defined on some Stradivari violin or Guarneri violin, Amati, to the finest, finest detail in terms of where the graduations are. But that's only relative because the, every piece of wood's different. So mm-hmm. if you follow that graduation with a nice piece of spruce, you're not necessarily going to get a great sound of violin. So how, what's the process? What's the instinct and what, where are the technical things you can do to bring out the best tone out of that piece of wood? And we're talking now the top. Well, it's, it's both the top and the back. Also, the arching is, is important or more important than the graduations. So the arching, you're, you're essentially building a bridge that's, you know, either supports the, the bridge of the violin or and in the case of the back, um, pushes back against the sound post and vibrates in a certain way. Mm. And I remember um, at a violin convention, Von Nikogosian gave a lecture, and uh, somebody asked him about arching, and he took a piece of paper and he bent it in a sort of in that classic arch, and he held it and he said, "Now touch the top, and you see how it bends." And then he he held held it in a couple of shapes and you could see how just the arch changed how when you apply pressure to a point it bends in different places and um so you know if if you try to bridge a river with a flat piece and you put weight in it in the middle you need a lot more thickness to support that weight or if you do a, a gentle arch this whole structure supports itself and you don't need as much thickness to, to support as mm. the weight. So just the transfer of, of the pressure on the arch, it, you're also transferring vibrations. Um, so with a violin, you've got this sort of, how did you describe it? Almost a figure eight shape or it's wider at the top and, and narrower in the middle and wider at the bottom. And, um, so trying to get an arch in on that, it's, it, there's a lot of subtleties involved. Um, and is that arch really sort of straight down the center uh, or do you find sometimes the arch moves and to one side or the other at the bottom of the violin versus the top? Well, symmetrical. Symmetrical, yeah, that's what I was You know, symmetry is this interesting thing because um, if you look at old violins, most of them are asymmetrical. And just with the arch, as soon as you put a sound post in, 
it's pushing up on the inside of the top and the back. And if you look at old violins, a lot of them, the arch is seriously distorted on that side from, from the sound post. That's but, on the treble side of the uh, bridge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So back to the, the symmetry, asymmetry thing. You know, you put a bass bar in a, in a violin and it's asymmetrical already. You've got a sound post on one side and a bass bar on the other. So people want symmetry, but at the same time, if, like if you look at somebody's face, you'd say it's symmetrical. But then if you look closely, it's asymmetrical. And that's what gives it character. So one of the things I've been playing with with making is, is conscious asymmetry in a subtle way. So it still looks symmetrical, but it's slightly not symmetrical, but in the direction that I would like it to be, like for playability or tone or whatever you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but back to the graduations and the arching. Um, so you start with the arching and and try and do the best you can on, on that. And I don't, I'll just say here, most violin makers are carving that arch into place. Yeah. But I, I met one violin maker years ago who bent the wood into yeah. that arch. So that can ha- some people do try that approach, don't they? Yeah, and there's history with uh, viol de gambas being bent, the tops being bent. So, yeah. But you, you're carving yours? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's take a moment to listen to Scott play a tune titled Bayou Fiddle Waltz. He is accompanied on the banjo by his wife, Jeannie Murphy. The tune was written by his good friend, Al Berard, for whom Scott made a violin and who recorded Scott and Jeannie's music CD, The Time's Been Sweet. Sadly, Al passed away in 2014 at the age of 53. But thanks to the many musicians that he helped over the years, his music lives on. I'll just say this, you know, going back to the symmetry idea, I think the research is showing people that we we classify as being beautiful. Uh, their faces are very symmetrical. Mm-hmm. It's not to say they have a lot of character as people. I have, <laughs> that's a whole other question. But, you know, you think of the classic models and so forth and handsome leading men. Their There's... faces are very symmetrical. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I think we, we are drawn to symmetry in that. Mm-hmm. We, we ascribe beauty to that. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I I actually really go for asymmetry. So, but, you know, like I said, in, in subtle ways. 
Well, so. that's almost in the fiddle world. They, what they call the crooked tunes are ones I love almost oh, more than any yeah. other tune. Oh, you know? yeah. Yeah. Just that phrase, or they jump out of the key slightly. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's kind of a asymmetrical. That's another. Form. That's another uh, direction to go in. Like, I love what I call squirrely pieces of wood. You know, pieces of wood with weird grain patterns and things like that. And sometimes they're real troublemakers to work with. I would think. So, yeah. Well, give me an idea why they would be troublesome. I, I guess the way the, just the way cutting the grain and what are the things? Give a lot trouble? of times when a when a piece of wood has has weird grain, like um, the grain lines instead of going straight up, they you know bend or something. A lot of that is caused by some um, way the tree was leaning or a branch coming out at a weird angle or something like that, or not in a certain place. And those can cause stresses in a piece of wood that then as you carve it, it starts moving. And one of the, one of the really neat things about wood is it's not a stable material. It's not inert. Yeah, it's always moving. I never thought of that. Yeah. Figure, you know, the woods, because you're, you're talking about working with wood often that is dried for 10, 15 years. Or longer. Or longer. Yeah. So you would think it'd be inert, it, but it, you're saying it's Oh, not. no, no. It's always moving. Changes in humidity. And even just, you know, as you take a, a blank for like a back and you carve away wood, you're relieving stress. And the piece that's left doesn't have that piece that you carved away that might have been holding something from moving. And so then it it starts to move. So Wow. Do you can you sense that literally through the tool that's doing the cutting or I mean how can you feel the the wood as you're working it? I I don't know how to put that in words. The the a lot of times you can sense it by looking at the piece of wood before you work with it. And you can see, I mean, a lot of the pieces I like are, like I said, squirrely pieces. And you can see that it's got weird grain and, and kind of predict that it might give you trouble. But it's they're so gorgeous, too, you know. So um, you have one now, which I was very surprised by, where the back is willow. Oh, that's and, a beautiful uh, piece of wood. What a piece of wood. And yeah. Very complex. Yeah. Not classically, you know, curly or... I mean, not that kind of complexity, a whole different thing. And I, and I, I, I love that talk piece about of wood, yeah. yeah. And you've been it's, working on this violin for, you said, a long time. Huh? Well, I started it for me, actually, in 2006, and then it got put on hold, and then I made a five-string for me. And and, um, and so it's sort of been hanging there, and I, I every once in a while I do a little work on it in between stuff. And, and it was finally close enough to finishing that I said, oh, let's push it through and... and Got all the woodwork done, and and I'm varnishing another violin, so I I did the two of them at once, which was really nice. Mark but, Twain used to do that with his uh, his stories in his books. He'd work a story, and sometimes it just get to a point where he just wasn't going to work it. It wasn't going to flow if he kept at it, and he'd put it aside, and sometimes for years. Yeah. But he'd come back to it often. Yeah. And then then it would go. It'd work. Yeah. I love that kind of thing. It's interesting because I was thinking about, you know, violin making in general and life in general and how 
you you try and balance between challenging yourself enough that you're making mistakes and learning from them and doing things that you know how to do to the point of boredom. And you want to find that balance where it's playful and, but it's, it's not, you're not making so many mistakes that you're like not getting things done. You can't solve the problem. Um, but it's, you it's wanna, your livelihood. Too, yeah. Is, you yeah. Know, you're on that edge. Yeah. So, and it's really, it's really difficult as a violin maker, you know, you charge more and more for your instruments and then you can't make mistakes. And so you have to find an outlet for that. So how, how are you going to get to do that? And for me, the last few years, it's been really difficult sometimes even just getting the work done because I'm terrified of making mistakes and it becomes perfectionistic and stagnant and the other side of it is you're doing something that you've done a million times and it's boring so one way to do it is to you know come up with another label and just no holds barred take some wood that you don't care too much about and have fun you know explain what you mean by another label i know what you mean well for a violin maker you put your label in the in the violin and if if you're putting your name on it. You want it to be yeah. the best. Um, so it's kind of nice to have like another label that doesn't relate to you that you can just like, you know, anything that <laughs> you want to play with, try something new, uh, play with speed or tool marks or a different pattern or some weird piece of wood or whatever, and not worry about is this gonna, is my name gonna be on this? Um, you can just do whatever you want, and then you know you're gonna throw that label on it, and so it doesn't matter. Um, Maybe at some point down the road for you, how, how old are you now? I'm gonna turn 50 in December. That's right, 50. Yeah. Maybe when you turn 60, which I know to be a very significant age, as it turns out. I, there's a whole thing about turning 60 that Peter Rowan, the, uh, great uh, musician and, and songwriter talked to me about one time and the Japanese believe that 60 is the big significant birthday. It has to do with cycles. It's like four cycles of 15 years or three cycles of, of 20 years. But the idea is that when you reach 60, whatever you were born into this world to do, whatever your sort of karmic responsibilities, you know, family you were born into, relationships you had to go through to learn whatever you had to learn, that's all over. And if you if you survived after sixty, you can make it up day by day. It's you're you're done, and mm. it's time to really run with that. And I've talked to people turning sixty, quite a few people, and uh, that's really the feeling they have. We make a big deal out of being fifty. I'm not trying to you know say you're not coming to a a thing that in our culture we consider to be an important date, but it's so funny. Um, but anyhow, I'm just sitting here thinking out loud, but. I could see at a certain point in a career of a violin maker doing what you're talking about, possibly having that other label, reach an age where it's always you then, you know, who cares anymore? Oh, uh, I could see that. I'll do yeah. the, the, I'll, you know, my name's on all of them. And, yeah. You know, because, yeah. Uh, and one of the things I'm so fascinated by, you know, we're jumping around from the technical side of things, and people who love the violin are probably wanting to hear that too. 
violin makers. But I've always been impressed by your spiritual beliefs. And mm-hmm. uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about that and what you see as its importance in your life and, and this work you do? I think it's all, everything works together. You know, when you look at a violin, people say, oh, it's the varnish that makes the tone or it's the graduations or the arching or whatever. It all has to work together. And like one maker will do something one way and that works with all the rest of how they make a violin. And um, so with my faith, it's, it's such a part of everything else. Um, I was raised Catholic and I'd kind of fallen away from that, but I knew I still believed in God and I was kind of searching and, and, um, I met Jeannie actually, um, at Folklife and, uh, we started playing music together and, and then fell in love at fiddle tunes and, and she had been, uh, raised by Freudian psychiatrists and then joined a Christian commune and then, um, got kicked out of that, um, and then became Episcopalian. And when she moved up to Puyallup, she, the Episcopal church there wasn't working for her. So she was kind of looking and I was kind of looking. And so we started visiting churches together and her brother came out and to visit and he was Orthodox. And Jeannie knew about this little Orthodox church up on Mount Rainier in Wilkeson. And explain what you mean by Orthodox. Um, Eastern Orthodox Christian. It's um, sort of like the Greeks and the Russians. And and, um, it's a a faith that grows on you. It's, um, It's a combination of mystical and rules that's weird. That there's all these rules, but it's like there's a bigger purpose that so you kind of let the rules go a lot, and um, but it's it's a very from what I see at a distance. I was raised Catholic myself, yeah, uh, but uh, it's it's very ritualistic, yeah, um, faith. I mean the practice of it, the different. Um, holidays, Lents, and things that you really take very seriously, and yeah. blessings before meals, and there's certain patterns yeah. uh, that are part of that faith, and uh, if done sincerely, I think, are very meaningful. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And so, I mean, when you pick up a piece of wood to carve it, is there anything, have you brought any of this sort of prayer life into the way you do this? And I'm oh, not yeah. trying to make something... Yeah. I've got a little prayer up on the wall that I do. You know, it's the prayer before commencing a task. I found it in a little Orthodox prayer book, and it was like, oh, yeah, that's it. So in the beginning of the day, I'll usually do that before I start work, and it just feels right, you know. And sometimes I feel like, you know, when you're trying to get work done and going through each day and it's, you know, you're alone in the shop. It's a lot of times it's all the thoughts come and bug you and all the, you know, I work in the shop next to my house, all the household chores, the garden, all those things that are distractions that drag you away from the shop. And it's hard to just stay 
with the work. At the bench. Yeah. That's what that called. Stay at the bench. And that's where the prayer life and even meditation really helps. Um, asking for help and also um, sort of like working as if you're standing before God. I mean, that sounds weird and grand and everything, but it's kind of like we all are every day. And um, just to acknowledge that and try and like, you can like rush through work and push it and break things sometimes. Or you can kind of try to pay attention. And a lot of times with violin work, it's like trying to, just trying to pay attention. Mm -hmm. And so the faith helps with that, I think. All right, and it's a faith based on, on the concept of love. Yeah. And I, that I'm very attracted to, that we mere mortals seem to have the ability to play some role, maybe like that arching. We, we play a role in communicating this love from one dimension into another, into these objects that we make and play. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I really do see it that way. Yeah. And uh, so anyhow, that's, that's, so back to the willow violin, which I love that. And I don't know oh. what the mythology about willows are. I mean, there's a mythology, you know, the plant itself and the old man willow, or I mean, I'm trying to think where I've heard that. Uh, but I looked at that piece of wood and you said it, it won't, be, it won't have that bright sound we're used to that a harder maple would have is. Yeah. Usually maple is used for the backs because it supports those higher end harmonics and even, um, European or, or harder maples, um, than Western big leaf. The first few violins I made were Western big leaf cause it's what we had around here and it was what I could get. And it's, it's a softer wood. And so it's not, there's some really good violins made out of Western big leaf, but in a world of major tradition, it's not the, the ideal wood. So, um, willow is kind of even less ideal probably in terms of a violin, but this piece had been, I got it from Battenkill Tonewoods from Robert Crosby. He was out at a convention in Salt Lake city and he had it sitting on the bench with all, all the other stuff. And the rest of it had gone for cellos. And cellos and violas are often made with softer woods. And it was just such a gorgeous piece. It's flat sawn. So you have the weird, um, the way the, the growth rings are, are flat with the plane of the wood or more or closer to flat. So you get these weird patterns from that. And it's got some bird's eyes in it. And some little little bits of flame here and there and it's just such a cool looking piece of wood so i kept coming back to it and and uh looking at it and he i'd bought a bunch of wood from from robert crosby and at one point he just handed it to me he said take it and <laughs> so um i you know i didn't know what to do with it really and it's power of lust yeah <laughs> so i i called him at one point and I said, can I buy some more willow that matches that for ribs and, and a scroll? And he sent me a chunk and it was really plain and it, it didn't call to me. So it just sat there. And, um, so this piece of willow just sat there for a long time. And finally I, I decided to make myself a violin 
you know, another one. And, and, um, I thought I'd, I'll use that piece of willow. And so I picked out some maple and, and, um, did a scroll and, and rib assembly for it and, and the willow back. And then I got a commission to make a five string and I made the five string and it got me totally hooked on, on five string violins. So the willow violin went on hold and, and I made myself a five string and, uh, that's what I play now. So this violin just hung there and every once in a while between things, I'd, I'd get a little work done on it. But, and Jim Ketterman's been bugging me about it. He's like, I want to hear what that thing sounds like. And yeah. another friend, Chris Burt, who's a violin maker is, is said, I want to hear what that thing sounds like, you know? And, and well, I so want to slow, hear what it so sounds slowly, like. Because so much time is taking place, you're getting in this clan. Now I want to hear how it sounds Yeah. Like. We were in your house the other day, you know, we stayed with you and I went in the shop and I saw it and first thing it pops into your head and you're varnishing it the day we arrived. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you realize it goes through that process and that has to, that takes some time and then it'll get strung up. And, you know, the, the first time that, violins played i just think that's kind of cool and i know it'll change yeah so you know that's not really necessarily what the violin's going to be like but are you are you excited genuinely excited the first time you draw a bow across the, the violin you made yeah yeah it's, waiting all the time for it to talk to you yeah, yeah yeah even you know as you're plucking the strings tuning it up it's kind of exciting you know yeah. so but in a way you know you're plucking those strings and uh you're waking up something that had a whole range of life when it was an organic thing growing yeah. in, the, in the soil. There's a Taoist poem, um, Chang Tzu, that's... Um, Love Chang Tzu. Yeah. Uh, something about, you know, the, somebody making this beautiful vessel out of a piece of wood and all the wood that was carved away is in the ditch and then you've got this beautiful thing that's made and both of them have lost their original nature. And I thought that was, that was always interesting. Well, let's talk just for a minute now and we're going to really change gears. Uh, what's, what's it like trying to make your living as a violin maker? I've got a really patient wife and it really helps. I, I'm not good with money issues at all and it's something I probably need to work on but somebody was just telling me that um, I'm almost non-existent on the web and I said yeah I'm not good at all that stuff and and I'm not really into computers and but what I found is that my biggest issue is making I I haven't had trouble selling the stuff I make so you know, sometimes I'll finish violin and I needed the money like months ago. And it's, it's really, you know, stressful and I'm freaked out. But usually a violin doesn't sit more than a few months and, it, and it's gone. And usually when somebody comes to me looking for something, I don't have anything. Sometimes I find it helps not to have a violin in the shop that's finished because it's, I get more work done instead of playing with the adjustment of the violin that's set up, you know, which you can do till you're blue in the face. And it's, you know, it's, you know, <laughs> um, it's, it's nicer to get the next one made. Um, 
And, and I've you, got way you, too many interests. So we'll go back to that in a minute because I know you you made a boat, yeah, which is right next to your shop, and it's a beautiful thing. But the but you're again you're also selling through shops like down in Portland and David and, Kerr has sold a lot of my, my violins uh, over the years. He's been really good to me. Yeah. Any other shops you work with regularly or um, Carl Applebaum sold a bunch and and uh, Armin Barnett sold a couple number of years ago and and um, I've sold one to Claire Givens and and She's in Johnson, Minneapolis. yeah, and Johnson Stringed Instruments in Boston, and but um, it would help if I had things made. I could send out to some of those shops further out, but yeah, that's the problem. The my biggest problem is getting out in the shop and making, and usually they're gone. And, you know? and you're in this folk music world. I mean, you're a great yeah. folk fiddler. And uh, I'm, you know, that's what I, what I would call it. I mean, you're playing these traditional tunes and these different uh, genres of that world. And a lot of people in this world just don't have the money, or if they do even, I mean, they just don't pay for these instruments, mm-hmm. uh, those kind of prices that people who are more in what we call the classical music world or professional music world would pay. Yeah. So what's that been like? I mean, have you had friends who are like, God, that's a great violin you're making. And, you know, they have to get their mind to the place where they spend multiples of thousands of dollars for something like that. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I, I essentially probably talked somebody out of one, buying one of my violins because it was kind of like I mentioned, you know, walking around a festival with something worth that much. You know, do you really want to deal with that? You know, and but at the same time, it's a tool. And you're using it. And so I don't know. Sometimes I wish I could just crank them out and and charge a lot less for them. But, and then sometimes it's like, well, gee, I really should charge more for them because of all the time. I mean, if you think about the hours that you've got in it and what you get paid an hour and that level of experience at any other job, <laughs> it's kind of like, wait a minute, you know. But, um, so it's a weird balance. Um, but I don't worry so much about it. A lot of, a lot of people that if someone wants one, they'll, they find a way to do it. And you're probably not dealing with people who are buying your instruments as investments. I know some people really, I mean, that's a big deal. Yeah. Even mine. Yeah. Yeah. So they'll say this is And as the prices go up, you know, it's like. I, I know people that bought my violins when they were six thousand dollars and they're twelve thousand dollars now, you know. So and do they sell them then? Sometimes? No, no, because they like them. They play them. You know? <laughs> so it's not an investment until you sell it. That's, yeah, I, mean, it's I a guess. Funny psychology, but they just feel yeah. better that they spent six thousand back in the day, or their kids will get it. Yeah. I mean, again, yeah. we're back to that idea of assigning values to things, and you have to, it, you know. Yeah. Money is a good thing in that regard. Uh, somebody once described money as a an animating force. Hmm. And I thought that was, you know, that was a pretty positive way to think of what it could be. And the nice uh, thing, though, as a violin maker, is it's not like someone is going to die because they can't afford one of my violins. Yeah. It's And there's plenty of really good quality violins that are a lot less money. And so, you know, I've done everything from help somebody... They've got some old fiddle, and, and um, I keep saying I don't do repair work. You know, I did that in the violin shop, and it bogs me down in my shop. And I probably shouldn't say this into a recording, but occasionally 
somebody, you know, their sound post fell over or something, you know, and their fiddle isn't working or whatever. And I'll repeating, I don't do repair work. I'll, I'll get it working again for them. And, and, you know, cause you're a nice guy. <laughs> well, you know, friends or whatever, you know, it's yeah. like, you want people to be able to play music, Yeah. but it's not like if they can't afford one of my violins, they're not going to be able to play music that there's other options. And so the people that want one of mine that can afford it do. So it's not like I have to make that decision like a doctor would have to make. Yeah. Uh, Anything else you want to say about this path you've been on and uh, oh, well, as a violin maker or advice to young violin makers? Oh, Something along that line. Well, when I, when I was, you know, when you first asked me about this and you were telling me, you know, doing the interview at, at Fort Warden, you know, during fiddle tunes, I've got so many memories of fiddle tunes and all the different people along the way. And, um, you know, like, um, Ken Kepler and Peter White gave a, they made a violin in the schoolhouse during the week of fiddle tunes one year. And it was back when I was interested in violin making, but not a violin maker yet. And I remember talking to them and asking questions and, Later on, Ken gave me a, a book he'd gotten from somebody who'd graduated from the violin school in Salt Lake City. Um, for their graduation project, they had to make a book of the whole process. And and Ken Xeroxed that book off for me and, and gave it to me and, and gave me a bunch of information on violin varnish. And um, so I just think of all the different people along the way. And fiddle tunes was a big part of that for me. But like going to the folk store in Seattle when I was in high school woodshop and Stu Herrick would take an instrument down off the the rack there and, and gave me a mirror. I could look inside and see the bracing on this mandolin. And and I took notes and then I went into woodshop and drew up a plan and, and made a little mandolin, you know. And uh, just the different people along the way that... that we have the sense almost clans. I mean, the clan of the music makers here. Yeah. And then, and then this other clan that interacts and weaves in and out, which I'm seeing. There's three luthiers here this year. Yeah. Up in 205, and people going up there, getting their bosri hair, doing a little trading, and then you know you got the trading thing going on, and yeah, um, and advice and so forth. And these are the tools that we play this music till three in the morning around here. I mean, there's a yeah. lot of it going on. So uh, there, there are clans. And so the clan of the violin makers, um, what's, the, what's the state of that clan? You were saying, you know, in the old days you had this idea, you know, I, I, I keep that secret for my varnish or my secret for that thing I do that makes my violin unique. I don't find that much anymore. Do you find it to be a clan that is, um, is, is healthy? with each other now? I think it's a lot more healthy than it was. Um, there's a lot more information sharing. And I think that the people who were keeping secrets kind of lost out because the people that shared information kind of bypassed them. And, you know, when you share, there's more, there's more information. And if you're secretive, it, you, you get left behind. And you're talking about like the next generation too. Yeah. Um, you know, these violins that we make and that were made before us, they're going to be around 
a lot longer than we are. And we're kind of like custodians. And if we don't share what we know with the next generation, who's going to take care of them? Who's going to know anything about them? So they'll be made by laser carving machines. Yeah, where's the romance in that? I know. I <laughs> you know? know, and you know, you were asking about graduations earlier, and we never really got into graduations, but yeah, it's a feel. Yeah. It's a feel. You know, when I'm when I'm doing the graduations on a violin, I'll weigh it before I start carving it, and then I'll carve it to like an initial thickness, and I'll weigh it, and then I'll decide from from that and what I'm trying to get out of it tone-wise initial graduations and then I'll carve it to those initial graduations then I'll start flexing it and tapping it and weighing it and then I'll say okay well let's do this and I've got notes from all the violins I've made in the past sometimes I'll look back at the notes and say well what did I do here and how did that work out and so you, you start making decisions and, and... Do you sometimes sleep on it? Do you get to a point where you just suddenly know to stop? I have dreams about violins sometimes, you know. <laughs> oh, like when you're varnishing, you have orange dreams, you know. It's like, oh, no, the color's not right, you know. It's too, too this or too that or, you know, or some little tiny flaw that just blows into gargantuan proportions in your, in your subconscious so and that's so funny. Yeah, I mean, I'm a performing storyteller for years. God, I have a repeating dream. You know, I'm late. I was supposed to, or oh. a public speaker. I'm supposed <laughs> to give this talk, and you know, I'm in the coffee shop, and suddenly realize, and I know I can't quite get there in time. And you wonder why we do this. Our brains must be processing. Utah Phillips, a very good friend of mine, said all dreams are healing. I found that to be the most helpful thing I think I've ever heard. So even when a dream seems to be so dark and so yeah. troubling, we must do that. There's something in the brain that's releasing. It's like carving that wood, isn't yeah. it? It's releasing the tensions that were there. And yeah. and uh, and we are healthier. I mean, I think brain or sleep research shows that people who do dream uh, or people who don't dream become very ill psychologically. Yeah. Isn't it funny we dream about this stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, one, one more thing when you talk about the next generation. Um, an interesting thing happened to me. There's a community boat project down in, in Lower Hadlock, and they've been making big um, row and sailboats with high school kids. And they're, they got connected with the, the wooden boat school who gave them a little bit of space on their property, and they built a sort of a boat shed. It's, it's unheated. It's a big, huge building. Um, and they've been making these boats. And I heard about it from a, a kid who was working with me in the shop, making a violin. And, um, he'd been involved in that and he'd learned how to be a rigger through that program, Cheka. And, uh, so I went and volunteered because you know, I'm interested in boats and stuff. Well, they found out I was an instrument maker. So rather than have me work on boats, they said, well, will you make some instruments with the kids? And it's an open air shop, no heat, no humidity control. A couple days a year, it rains inside the building because of the humidity. And so it's been a challenge trying to find things that you can make in that atmosphere that are musical instruments. Um, 
But the first year I was working with this kid named Ian, he was 12 and he was the kid that knew where every tool was in that shop. And, um, he was younger than the other kids and kind of a little ADD. He just, you know, keeping him on task was sometimes difficult, but he's just a neat kid and really into making stuff and knew where all the scrap bins were, where he could grab a piece of wood or a chunk of metal or whatever. And he was always making stuff out of them. So we made this little strum stick. And when it came time for him to glue the top on, I said, Ian, what's your last name? Let's put a label in here with your name on it. And he said, Standifer. Well, Tex Standifer was the guy that got me started making fiddles. And I told him about Tex. And Tex's name is Claude E. Standifer. And everybody called him Tex because he was from Texas. Well, Ian said, well, my family's from Texas. And all the Standifers are related. And... I talked to his dad a couple weeks later and, and he said, yeah, there was a Standifer who moved out from Virginia or somewhere in the 1700s. And there's all these Standifers that are, are all descended from him. And so it was this weird circle where I'm helping this kid to make a musical instrument named Standifer, you know, when Tex Standifer was the guy that got me started. So, yeah. Makes you wonder. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Scott. Yeah, thank you. After I finished my interview with Scott, we drove over to his house and went into his violin-making studio. I grabbed my walking-around microphone and asked him to recite the prayer he says each day before he begins working on his violins. Almighty God, our help and refuge, fountain of wisdom and tower of strength, who knowest that I can do nothing without thy guidance and help. Assist me, I pray thee, and direct me to divine wisdom and power, that I may accomplish this task and whatever I may undertake to do, faithfully and diligently, according to thy will, so that it may be profitable to myself and others, and to the glory of thy holy name. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. We depart now from using our regular theme music to end our show, and instead use a fiddle tune from the Appalachian Mountains, played by Scott, titled Green Mountain. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For information concerning this podcast and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us an email. And keep listening.